Hiring for your small business? If you're not looking for professionals on LinkedIn, you're looking in the wrong place. That's like looking for your car keys in a fish tank. LinkedIn helps you hire professionals you can't find anywhere else, even those who aren't actively searching for a new job but might be open to the perfect role. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't even visit other leading job sites. So start looking in the right place. With LinkedIn, you can hire professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. Hi, my name's Kyle. Originally from the UK, but currently living in the Netherlands. And you're listening to Dane Baptiste Questions Everything. My question is, what is the best joke you've ever heard? Okay, here comes the show. And remember, question everything. Hello, everybody. Welcome to Dame Baptiste Question Everything, a podcast where myself, comedian, writer, and occasional actor, Dame Baptiste, my producer friend, Howard Cohen, a.k.a. De Hizza, Hello! And a mix of very special guests pose the questions that need to be asked. And we are talking everything from... Well, well, we're talking everything from Kyle, from the Netherlands question. What's the best joke you've ever heard? <laughs> Dane, Dane, good luck with this. Could be, a, could be a very, lo- could be a very, very loaded question. But um, oh, uh, first of all, thank you, Carl. Uh, it's a very, uh, we're very flattered to hear uh, questions from uh, abroad. Um, so I really appreciate that. I'd say, do you know what? I have a theory about this. I probably don't know the best joke I've ever heard, but what I probably do know, um, and I say this all the time, is that I find it very funny that there is a stigma in comedy that women are not funny. When I would wager that the most of the time, the first time every human being has ever laughed, uh, a person who was a woman made them do it because your mother normally makes you laugh, whether it's with tickling or making funny faces or just generally indulging you. So my answer is, Carl, I don't remember the funniest joke I've ever heard, but my mother probably told it and I probably laughed my head off and probably shit myself a little. Oh, what a good yeah. answer. That's a profound answer. I was just going to say people falling over, but um, that's... Uh, <laughs> Which is also always good. It is pretty much <laughs> the other one. But anyway, suffice to say on this podcast, we ask and answer all the questions, don't we, Dane? Absolutely. No question is too big, too small, too highbrow, too dumb, or too irrelevant. Therefore, if you enjoy the show, please rate and review it on Apple Podcasts or follow us on Spotify and you'll never miss an episode. Or you can subscribe to us on Acast, the world's biggest podcast network where you can hear all of our very special questions being asked and answered by our very special guests. With that being said, on today's show is a British singer, songwriter, electronic music DJ and occasional model. I feel about saying occasional, Howard. Just say model. <laughs> it, was what, it, was what, it was what was written down by another person, so I wasn't going to argue. Well, everybody models occasionally. No I've one's modelling constantly. Dane, model. I've never modelled. I want to make that clear. It's all modelling is in the eyes of the photographer. <laughs> like beauty is in the eyes of the beholder, Howard. Okay. To, to somebody, you're a model. There's someone out there making like glasses frames, being like, look at that Adonis. Yeah. Thanks, mate. He'd be perfect. I so, appreciate that. Got to celebrate you, Howard. So, with that being said, um, I want to say again that on today's show is a British singer, songwriter, electronic music DJ, and model. <laughs> she is well known as the lead vocalist of British rock band Skankanansi. She's had a successful co- solo career across many genres and now hosts a Sunday night show on Absolute Radio. Her new book, It Takes Blood and Guts, is available from all good book outlets now and is an extraordinary story of how a gay, black, working class girl fought through poverty and prejudice to write songs in front of her own band to become one of the most influential women in British and global rock. She's a global icon and she's been smashing stereotypes for over 25 years. And one time when I was in year nine, somebody said I actually look like her, which is a very clearly a compliment <laughs> because she has not aged a day. Please welcome to the podcast, Deborah and Daya OBE, but better known as Skin of Skunk and Hello. Well, there's an introduction. Yeah, no, I, I started off my career modelling as I haven't done that in a long time. That was back in the day. Yeah. yeah. I don't <laughs> to like to answer, argue with to information. Yeah. There's information provided by the internet, you see, and it's like if I start arguing with it, it gets tricky. I, when I'm... I feel like it's a, not a bad start in life, you know. <laughs> if, if you are. If, if, if anything, it tells you what you don't want to do. You know, yeah. Well, um, that's an interesting way know, to look at it as well. Like, yeah, yeah. Yeah, I mean, I think you yeah, everything you have, you have to have a talent, and I certainly did not have. I mean, you know, modeling is not about being a pretty face, really. It's about finding light. You know, mm. being brazen and all that stuff, and that's uh, I didn't. Skin, have. I've got to ask you, what is the best joke you've ever heard? Carl from the Netherlands asked us it, and uh, I don't know if you've got one up your sleeve. Oh my God, you know what? I've got enough jokes, but I have to say, <laughs> my favorite joke is so long, it will take up 
at least 10 minutes of your time. So oh, I'm not okay. tell my, right. I, I'll tell you my shortest favourite joke. Great. I heard this from when I was about five and it still makes me giggle. And it's um, history is a thing of the past. <laughs> yeah, that's nice. Nice when I was five. That I thought that was really funny. I think know? that's funny still. It's, but you know, it's profound because again, it's quite simple. I'm, I'm trying to beat that joke, but I don't think I've got it. So it's probably time for a question, isn't it, Dane? As the format of this show dictates. Absolutely, Skin. As our very esteemed guest, we'd like to welcome you to answer a question, whichever question you'd like, which we like to discuss for about fifty minutes and some change. And then Howard here, the hizzle, would like to pose a question to you for the same amount of time. And in a surprising twist, I would like to then ask you a question, which we discuss for 15 minutes again for some change. And once we're done, we'd like for you to tell all of our listeners where they can find out about more of your ongoing good works and maybe some of your older works too. Maybe some of your, maybe your model mm-hmm. photos are NF- NFTs. And, you know, we want to pass on that wealth back to you <laughs> and use this opportunity to give you the flowers you so very much deserve. How does that sound? <laughs> okay, that sounds very nice. Very Lovely. nice. Well, please, like the, the floor is yours to ask the first question. So, um, what did you, what is the best and the worst thing that you learned in lockdown? Whoa, good, good, good question. question. And obviously quite clear what inspired that question. Uh, can we just check in of how your lockdown was, Skin, before me and Dana put something forward? Um, do you know... I'm going to be really honest and say um, I kind of liked most of it. <laughs> you know, as someone who, I mean, I've been running on empty since I was 18 years old. I started working at 14 and I just been working my whole career. Mm-hmm. And lockdown was the first time I literally sat down for the first three weeks. I think I just sat and watched shame for three weeks, just completely just you know, <laughs> relaxed and was just like, I've got, there's no, I, there's nothing I can do. It's not my fault. I'm not being lazy. Um, I have no choice. And then after about three weeks, I was like, okay, I'm bored now. Let me find things to do. Yeah. So it's, uh, you know, and, and I was, I was, I made it to, to lockdown. I made it here in New York where my partner and I live. Um, literally two hours before they closed the borders. So the, the run up to it was like some weird car chase um, involving like Mr. Bean and, uh, you know, <laughs> Peter Sellers, like some old school crazy car chase and waiting for forms and people like, you know, withholding information. And I got on the plane and I got here at 10 o'clock and they closed the borders at 12. So I guess wow. the run up to it was crazy. And I got here and I just chilled for three weeks. And then after that, I started learning things and started doing things. And it's kind of that thing. Everybody's like, you know, oh, if I had the time, I'd do this, this and this and that. And I say most people did, you know, didn't do much. Um, I am on, on the other side. I did do a lot of things that I've been dying to do for a long time. So I um, I learned a lot of software and I, I, ba- I basically learned how to become my own producer, my own engineer. Wow. Which is something that I do is a job that I give to other people. I mean, basically, these people like to get a good one. It's 250 upwards a day. So mm. I was like, I didn't want to spend that money. And for, finally, I had that time to do that myself. So um, that but for me, it was it was pretty good. I, I, I kind of enjoyed it. And I'm going to be honest, there's moments now it's got crazy busy again. There's moments where I kind of look back to that time in a romantic way <laughs> and my vision blurs my vision blurs and this music comes into my brain and it's just I'm like oh remember that time we had like a year and a half off you know yeah. <laughs> I mean I did I feel it's it, I, before we came on the show uh Skin was telling us that she doesn't like coffee by the way listeners otherwise this this yeah. next, this next yeah, comment might not make one. yeah <laughs> but the uh mornings like if you, you know, for, for me, in, I work in television skin and like, so I would, you know, go into an office pretty much every day. And um, like that all kind of is gone, you know, because I was working from home. So like making my coffee in lockdown, it's like a, it's like a joyous experience. Like there's nothing, you know, yeah, just to stand, no rush. look out the window. If it was a sunny day, I'd look at the garden, hear the birds, just like peace so i do get what you're what you're saying for sure there were there was definitely some perks dane have you got your kind of most positive thing out of lockdown i i I mean i I definitely know mine mate i'd say uh, my 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 positive thing would be very similar to skins in that i think uh most of our lives pursuits have been 
imagining ourselves as either rats in a race or beats of bird and chasing a carrot. And the pandemic was just like a large chasm of nature. Um, And I I wouldn't say I enjoyed, but I think it was very important for, from an existential standpoint to realize that like for all of our pursuits, for all of my ambition, for all of my ego and aspirations, like you are still a part of nature and you're still flesh and blood. And if nature dictates that you have to stop and slow down uh, as a species, we're no different to any other species on the planet and we are subject to the same forces as well. And I think that was important for everyone to see. I think I had been dealing with a bit of somewhat level of a fatalism in terms of the state of the climate and of uh, the environment and how we were going to remedy that as people. And when lockdown began, hearing reports of like bees numbers beginning to rise again and uh, marine life returning to canals in Venice and stuff, for me, it was kind of like, oh, so it is us. And if we just chill, then we can actually (laughs) allow for nature to begin a uh, road to recovery. So that kind of filled me with like a lot of hope to realize that like, you know, in many ways, the the solution is rather simple. If we just chill and we're not constantly in pursuit of uh, capital gain and consumption of resources, then we, there is a way that there can be balance in the world. So I looked at it like, I'm not down, playing down the pandemic and the humanitarian kind of like um, of course, effects yeah. of it I mean, at all. That, I that's sure that's kind of the backbone. That's the, that's, that's the backbone of the whole conversation. Yeah, like, of course. Yeah, okay, yeah. it was horrible. That's the yeah. backbone. It was awful. It was horrible. But, you know, if there's going to be... But only, the human, but, only, yeah, only, but only the humanitarian side of it. And we know that's awful. But yeah. like I said, there was a lot of silver lining. There was a lot of I think, yeah, but I think the thing about it was in terms of climate change and all that kind of stuff is that, you know... The, the the thing that we don't need to do, which one thing that I also love, that my on my best of COVID list was Zoom, because mm-hmm. you know, for instance, when I got an album coming out, when we got music coming out, we have to go to a different country every day for a yeah. month to do mm-hmm. press. And like, now that's gone. I am not getting out of my house to do that. Kind of <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Again, of I'm just not doing it. Wasn't it? It was pointless. It was pointless. I mean, you know, it's like yes, you if you have to go on a TV show, yes, you have to leave. So if it's like okay, yeah, if I see tv in a studio not tv in a room mm. um which is basically effects then 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 it's like okay i'm gonna go and be on that tv show you know if you know uh noah kind of calls me i'm gonna be there yeah, but yeah. if it's just a matter of like i'm gonna go and i'm gonna sit in a room and one journalist comes in after another we, i can do that on zoom mate i'm not doing that yeah. and all that rushing around feeling that we need to do that's the stuff that affects the climate the worst in many ways yes definitely and, and also what it's travel yeah it's a travel definitely affects it when it's not necessary as well um so i think for everyone in the creative industry and just people that are involved in a line of work which doesn't involve frequent travel and frequent business i think it was nice to see that a uh you know something like zoom can kind of facilitate all of that so you know i think and i think there is a real humanitarian importance of the fact that now you're in a position whereby you can still do your obligations and promote an album and have contact with outlets but it means that you don't have to leave your partner or if you're if you have kids, you don't have to leave your kids. And I think that was a large part of what I saw the perks of uh, the pandemic and lockdown was, is that some people were put in positions whereby, you know, they could do their job and obligations, but because they're working from home, they were able to interact with their partners a lot more and their families a lot more. Now, on the one hand, that means we proved it showed you the uh, foundation of uh, some people's relationships because there was a large spike uh, in divorces and separations, just like, but. Maybe people needed to have that confrontation. They did. They, that, well, they, yeah. they, some of those relationships were dragged out for years. There you go. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. So people, I mean? people forced to be not wanting to, true. Yeah. Not wanting to the, the loser. Uh, do you know another thing that I thought, which is a weird thing, is just like um, I'm very technically minded. I'm mm. kind of software minded, and what I worked out in, in in COVID was I can do anything around the house. I built literally this whole room. I built this desk from any flat pack. I can do it and I think that especially for women there's this whole mentality of like oh yeah you've got to get men in to do that got to get taskmaster or some absolute you know and it's actually these things there's this energy around things that like oh we leave that to the men leave that to the boys and actually these things are not difficult to do and I think there's definitely a lot of my friends that don't like doing anything technical or 
gear or computers or whatever that were forced to do it because I yeah. had them in their own houses. Mm. And a lot of my friends would be like, you know, it's not so hard. I put that together, I put that shelf <laughs> up. It's yeah, not so hard. These men make it feel like these things are like, you yeah. know, it, it can't be done. You have to no, put it's, 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 it's it. important. And, and that's and important. It's, it's, it's that's silly so important. to say. No, it's but, not because it, it works on a larger scale because a large yeah. part of our social problems, are, uh, um, they originate from the fact that... Or making women the, think they can't do things. Number one is that a patriarchy making you think women that they can't do things. And a large, and if you think about it on a larger scale, like you may have had a Hillary instead of a Donald the first time around if people thought women could do stuff. And I think on a large scale, the way that works is that a lot of time, as you said, we give over power or we delegate power to external bodies to take care of ourselves and welcome people into our homes and they may not necessarily be your superiors in terms of competence. So I think for a lot of people, we had to find out how to do things ourselves. Like you've had your aptitude in terms of more aspects of the industry you're in, you understand a lot more and that can work, have two benefits. It means you can do it yourself and you understand the nuance of the process of engineering and mastering. And it means that, you know, you can now, uh, this you can kind of have more discernment about what price is fair for the amount of work that's going to be required. And you probably have maybe more reverence for the, what the other work people do because now yeah, you do it yourself. Exactly. Because there's certain jobs that, yeah, there's, that's what the skill is in this job. You know, yeah. um, I mean, you know, but the basic kind of things of putting things together and working things out actually is really not that difficult. The mm-hmm. skill is someone who's been doing it for 10 years, they can do it way faster mm-hmm. or they, they've broken into the, the, the thing in a way that they just have a talent and a skill for it. And that's that's where the skill is. But in terms of just putting things together that arrive flat packed and all that kind of stuff, it's just, you know, I think that it, what, what lockdown, I mean, I must have saved thousands and thousands of pounds. <laughs> yeah. I'm telling you. I was going to ask you to come saying, over if you got a couple of spare hours. Uh, yeah, uh, and I quite enjoy it. I yeah, quite I enjoy I've got a whole load of problems going on here. You <laughs> yeah. wouldn't believe it. Yeah, uh, and it, it's so it's, that's one of the definitely. What, the what, what, I, it's so interesting listening to you both now because I, I I feel that you what you're talking about is is kind of what my answer kind of would be to this whole question of what was the kind of silver lining or the, or the positive, the pandemic positives, which uh, is a simple way of putting it. And um, I, I, I just think I just felt clarity about existence in a way that being constantly dragged out into the open world, you are, I'm bombarded with distractions. I'll, I'll give you an example, right, which I think about a lot because I probably pop into London, you know, I just live out just outside of London and um, probably go in a few times a month now. But, like, Pret-a-Manger, right? Like, <laughs> how, uh, how meaningless is Pret-a-Manger? Like, and obviously, it's not meaningless to all the people who's... Just, but like, I want you to remember your words come in brand, <laughs> brand partnership time. When, when, <laughs> you know what? I'm how meaningless actually, is Pret-a-Manger? Well, but, but what I, what I realised, going in, like, having not been in for... Let's say I haven't been in for a year, after argument's sake, right? When, like, the first time I had that sandwich, I was like... Huh, interesting. Like, this sandwich doesn't really matter. Like, it doesn't really, like, it's not that, why was I buying this sandwich all the time? Like, it was only because it was there and basically society is built in a way that kind of, kind of makes me do that. Not that, not that I don't like other people's sandwiches. It's just like, it's just everywhere and I know I like it. And, but that isn't logic in any way to me about existence. It's kind of, why would you just keep doing the same thing? It just felt like a, a, yeah. a, a really good example of how capitalism has kind of built um, just a, mon- a mundaneity in our lives, I think. Got, got golem, golems of habits. Also, like, it's, it's face, fake as well, because I know you actually mean about um, the uh, uh, popular high street brand of uh, Sandwich Maker. Mm. <laughs> 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 Sorry, what's that branding in the background? <laughs> <laughs> it's a lawyer, it's like on my shoulder. Um, no, the, the sandwiches are dreadful. And I haven't been away and then coming back in to England you know I have I've, I'm gonna be honest I've got a favorite sandwich right <laughs> and my famous sandwich you can get in Greg's you can get Marks and Spencer's right. you cannot get in pret okay and it's just it's a cheese and onion sandwich but when in a mash it up and cut it up so it's like and it's just a lovely bread it's a delicious sandwich so me and my partner call it the best sandwich in the world wow you know because it's just a very tasty sandwich and it, you realize that um other sandwiches 
are there because you think that you've got a favorite sandwich. You think that that, you know, that ham and whatever that Brett Manja do is a great sandwich, but actually, actually no. Yeah. Um, and I think it, that, that that that's one of the things I like I, I liked about COVID was that you actually stood stood back and readdressed the problem of you thinking because you've always done something, that's the way you should do it. Mm-hmm. And because you always like that sandwich, that's the way you should like it. And because you've always gone in that that way, that's way that that route around the park that you run is the best route around the park. And I think that there's that questioning and that kind of searching for the truth in our life and all of that to get a bit slightly more serious that we're going to see repercussions of in the next 10 years because you know there's a reason why 45 percent of all um uh, crew and who go on tour 45 percent have left the industry mm. and it's because it's actually Ooh. really horrible and awful thing to do is just go from one band to another traveling around the world you know doing the kind of grind to make the the artist feel happy whatever um, and i always just think god that's a really hard job crew and i think that they thought that themselves and a lot of them have just left the industry i'm not surprised yeah. i think i think that the, the summation of what i was getting at there is that it's um it, it was because I wasn't being told what I had to do. It was nice to think about what I would actually do. And I mm. think m- many, many of us have had that experience and meant that there was a positive of the p- pandemic, eh, Dane? Yeah, I definitely. I just, I just, I just hope that, like you said, Skin, that people continue to really take the time to touch base with their humanity as they were kind of forced to do with the pandemic and realize that, like, because I, I mean, I even tell people now when people talk about like employment or their uh, financial woes, is that like there were a lot of people who were gainfully employed and just weren't able to go to work because of lockdown. And by that same token, it meant that we were all forced to confront what our purposes, um, all of our collective purpose is when money is not a factor or being present in a place of business is not a factor. So it meant that part of your um, being, you know, your, um, I guess your industrial purpose or your professional vocation was no longer a large focus of your life. Mm. And because of that, people have to think about who they are and what their life means without the, without the accompaniment of having an occupation. So I hope that, I think that's, I, uh, not that I'm reducing it at all, but, I think that we are moving forward globally, humanity should, and especially when we are trying to have a great understanding of mental health, having these almost like siestas and these shutdowns where we yeah. close places of business. We close like, you know, we, we halt production. We halt production in the manufacturing industry. We kind of either halt or reduce certain aspects of like tertiary and quaternary industry. Maybe like agriculture and manufacturing might continue to an extent. But we have almost like a siesta, global siesta where we allow the planet's resources and and uh, and its um, flora and fauna. Can we just make it December? I think that would go down really well. If I, th- we just I, made I think it. we should. I, I think <laughs> every time. The Italians do it in August. Yeah, yeah, yeah exactly. Why, and why not? Close the whole place down in August. And, uh, human beings are a diurnal species. We we function better with the purpose of sunlight. So maybe summertime around August, we should set enough time that even if it's for a month or three weeks, but there should be an extended period globally where human beings we do not. Quant- quantify or qualify our humanity based on what we're earning and what we're doing for yeah I, you know that's not and a bad idea it sounds crazy i think yeah. you but could get to power it, i think you could get power it, it sounds crazy but think about it if we had yeah. a three or four week august lockdown where no one else no one was allowed to go anywhere and we just used the resources of our local community we didn't get on a plane we didn't go on the you know we just stayed where we were for um for four weeks or three weeks or even two weeks i just think that that's actually just it's not the worst idea on the planet as crazy as it sounds it, mm. that's what happened and we, <laughs> yeah. were forced, and we did it and we, we did it and we survived if yeah, someone we, suggested it we would never in a million years have done it but because it was forced upon us we, were, we and still thrive yeah we still we actually looks i'm sure they're going to do studies in terms of like how much better that was for people on a personal level on a financial level on a uh, climate change level on a, a mental health level mm. you know i mean you know a, a year and a half is too long obviously but mm-hmm. two three weeks isn't the worst idea no. i mean i know it's not for everybody because some people's home situations are absolutely awful so i know it's not something for everybody well we've been yeah initial idea and feeling of, of well, well, well maybe i mean i mean that's part of why i think it might be necessary is that when people are at home and their home or domestic conditions are terrible it might be more of an, an impetus for them to change it because if you know the lockdown's coming we would be more, because I think a lot of the time, most of us have to treat our domicile as like 
a stopover when until we go back to work. Yeah, yeah you pass mm. through. Whereas if you mm. know this is my home and this is the habitat in which I'm supposed to spend most of my time and be able to thrive in, then you, you'd scrutinise it a lot more, which is why I'm saying you'd be less inclined to give over power to external bodies to allow yourself to be in those conditions. If we all knew we got to be in the same place, but we have a government that doesn't take care of us ecologically and economically and socially or even, you know, familially, then we'd be more inclined to be more, uh, to participate more in like, you know, go- in governance. So I think, and even when we look at some of like, you know, the huge humanitarian loss that came with the pandemic, a lot of those are the result of underlying health conditions, which themselves are a result of the stress that comes with people working all the time, being forced to stay on the grind on the grindstone. So I think that human beings, we understand as mammals that there are a number of mammals that go into some form of uh, like stasis or hibernation. We should do the same thing as mammals as well. Um, and that's what I think the pandemic taught us is that like, you know, we can survive without having to go out and work every day. And I think that is a lesson in a post-global capitalist world that the whole world needs to know. What a great question skin you've you smashed it that was i mean dane we could do we could just do that one but with the (laughs) format of the show dictates that we now have to give the people what they want but that was a great great question thank you skin i hope hope the answer and the conversation was what what you what you were looking for oh yes it's uh it is what i mean it's yeah yeah i think it is Hey, it's Danny Pellegrino from Everything Iconic. Ready to upgrade your style game without blowing your budget? Check out Quince. They've got all the good stuff, shirts and polos, activewear and fine leather goods, all at 50 to 80% less than other high-end brands. And the best part? They're all about safe, ethical and responsible manufacturing. Get that luxury vibe without the luxury price tag. Hit up quince.com slash upgrade for free shipping and 365-day returns on your next order. That's quince.com slash upgrade. I'm Sandra, and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for. But you didn't hire me because you didn't use LinkedIn Jobs. LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job but might be open to the perfect role, like me. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. My question this week is inspired by uh, your uh, works, um, Skin. And um, uh, listeners, you know me pretty well. Uh, It happens occasionally that I'm quite... um, uh, excited by a guest. I'm excited by all guests. Sorry, I should say that I'm, <laughs> I'm excited by all the guests. But like, occasionally, I've got fandom from from my my youth of, of someone. And I was definitely a Skunk and Anty fan uh, growing up. Uh, you guys made some 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 great tracks. Skin, as uh, I'm sure you know. And uh, the the question I was going to ask you is is when I, I was kind of you know listening back to them the other day, and it's so packed full of emotion because it was a rock band right and it, and, it, and, it, and it's so packed full it of, is. <laughs> so packed full of emotion you know obviously yeah. weak is a very very famous song but uh hedonism is another really famous song and, and twisted they're very 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 emotionally driven songs and I, I suppose my question to you and to dane and to any listener who wants to get in who wants to talk about art is how much do you feel that you need uh, masses of emotion in your art, or if you, if I, if I, if I told you to make your art without tons of emotion in it, how would you, how would you deal with that? Because it, it feels like it's so integral. You, I'd be like an uh, an old black gay Justin Bieber, wouldn't I? <laughs> 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 uh, maybe emotion. Um, I mean, <laughs> it's you know, it's kind of like. Um, you know, I'm one of them people that I sit on the tube and I just eavesdrop. I love it. Mm. I've got my head, headphones on and then when I see someone having a big old conversation, I switch them off and I just <laughs> listen because a lot of the things that, um, I mean, for me, the way I would describe art is it's it's a translation of one, something that you're feeling and that translation, the quality of that translation so that everyone else can understand what you're thinking and feeling or what your viewpoint is. That's where the art is you know, the mm. route from yourself to, you know, the, the general public or to someone else. You know, if I, the way that I translate things is completely different to the way, you know, uh, another artist would. And so for me, I, the songs that I 
like or the songs and the feeling I like is in that translation for me it's conversational like some of the some of the song titles Skunkanancy song song titles are so long you know who put little baby's foster on the wall um it takes <laughs> blood and guts to be this way but I'm still just a cliche um you know uh, well, weak, weak in itself it's, weak in itself weak I mean, as I it, am, and, and it's no just worth, you, yeah. it's yeah. worth saying to people that when that song came out in the in the mid 90s uh, yeah mid 90s um mm. 96 I reckon it's 96 96 yeah yeah, 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 yeah. yeah. There you go. I remember it well. But like, yeah. it was it was jarring with what was going on in British music at the time because of a number of reasons, but also just because it was so <laughs> intense. Whereas, no offense to our yeah. no offense to Oasis and Blur, who I very much enjoyed and do enjoy their works. It was just so, <laughs> but I mean, it was you know for me it was like it was it was a great time to be listening to like pulp. I love I used to love pulp. I just loved yeah, a lot I like of music. Pulp, yeah. I loved loved a lot of music at that time, right? And 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 you guys were just like it was just such a totally different vibe. Yeah, I mean, you know that that kind of works for us and against us. I mean, to answer your first part of your question, you know. Um, for me, my the way that I talk and the way that I, I see things conversationally, that's it has to be connected to me in some way. I mean, I think that the best, the, the most, the best topics that you can talk about with complete information from strength and you know what's going on and some things that have happened to you. So yeah, the, the songs are very emotional. Um and there, they can be that can be an angry emotion because of a political thing. You know, we have written political songs from day one, or it can be like this thing really hurt me. How am I going to transcribe that and translate that to everybody else? So yeah, I think the songs are deeply, deeply emotional and all come within something that I've known happened to me or I saw or felt. And sometimes my friends are in there because the way that songs are, it's not like. You, I have a topic for a song. Every single lyric to do with that song is going to be about that one topic. Sometimes the lyrics kind of swim around. So this line is about this person. That line is about that person. This line, it, you know, the lines aren't all about the same thing because you, when you're pooling your resources of your emotion to make a song, it comes from your whole experience of your life and not just that person in that moment. I mean, it's an amazing answer, right, Dane? It's, and it's you know, it's what it's like. So if, I think right at the beginning there, Skin, you said something about how you know, you know, emotion drives so much art. That's 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 the bit that really is the art. The other bit is yeah. is this com- yeah. commercialization of of, of our it's, of our it's, feelings. It's, 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 yeah, it's, the, I mean, it's the show show in business, isn't it? The show is the exactly, yeah. is the is the method by which you choose to make your emotions tangible and perceivable to an audience. Uh, hopefully to evoke emotion and then the business part is where they're like well we need to find out what demographic that goes with and we should try and keep the song within three minutes and 30 seconds so it's like radio play friendly and yeah which is why I say is, is you know the, the the root of the jewel and the diamond in the whole thing is that the, the beginnings of it are real because so much of it gets distorted as you say it's got to be three and a half minutes it's got to have four words in the chorus that you know but that's the translation that's the skill to be able to do what you do and make it successful because anyone can write a song but to write a hit song or a song that means something to someone, that translation, that's where the skill really comes from. But it's much easier if it's coming, the root of it, the diamond in the middle, is coming from an a honest and a real place and a soulful place. Mm-hmm. Isn't that why, um, not to start a controversial subject that might piss you know everyone off, but isn't that kind of why Adele became so popular? <laughs> popular because everyone just I'm not that I suggest everyone has to like her music obviously but like I swear there was a point where everyone did <laughs> well pretty much the majority of the of the of the viewing public listening public just loved what she was doing and wasn't it because they just really definitely got her pain yeah because that's I mean that's essentially why it works I think and familiarity, I, yeah. yeah familiarity and also it's like you know who how a story of young heartbreak it's going to resonate with any human being who has experienced love or romance before and it's actually for me it's it's refreshing to an extent. Um, yeah, you could argue formulaic as well, but it goes to show you for all of the various trends and the level of flux that might be in contemporary and popular music that changes all the time. Like when it comes down to somebody just making an album full of ballads, which references and chronicles heartbreak and the recovery from said heartbreak or kind of relationship-based trauma, everyone can relate to that because it's, it's one of the most... And, yeah, everyone and we'll all, you, those songs will always be popular. Yeah, there'll be because timeless people, as well, yeah. You yeah, know, timeless. because a new generation comes up and... <clears throat> and because you know people are always having you know their heart mash up so all the time all the time and, and, what, and, and she, she's got she's got that voice where she can translate that feeling in her voice 
you yeah. know. And, it, and so it's a very distinct, different, different voice to when she's speaking. And I think she's singing. And it's so important to well, show you, it shows you that like, she is obviously assuming from, exactly. She's just another lady in the ends. But like when she's singing, it means that, you know, that whatever emotion, whether it's internalized, whether it sits in the recesses of her mind or her heart, she's able to evoke that and commit it to something tangible. So, people, yeah. so mm. for me, how at mm. risk of sounding quite wanky with it, like I always feel like art is an abbreviation of the articulation of emotion and of feeling. Hmm. So, and uh, and also the words ART as well are made up in anthropology. So when Skin was saying about loving to people watch and listening and conversations, like for me, I let you was that's always my fuel and the source I go to when I'm creating as well because I would like to think and it might just be my own uh, these are my own platitudes but that's the big payoff with art is that you validate the emotions and the thoughts that most people have in the quantum of their solace. All this makes me think about um, how Otis Redding's the ultimate fucking badass of history and music just because to me every line of every song <laughs> he ever sung was just so emotional. Like, I was listening to something the other day, which is, just, I think it's just called Cigarettes and Coffee. Um, and he, he literally sounds like a guy who's just sitting there having a cigarette, drinking some coffee. But he just makes it sound like it's a life or death, like, kind of something, like a really profound moment in his existence, which now, obviously, it will it will feel that way but, that, but that's why it works, Howard, because somebody, because most people would be like, if I'm sitting here having a cigarette and drinking a coffee, most people aren't paying attention to me. I'm probably at my most cerebral because I'm by myself. Hmm. So when someone's able to create an aesthetic which reflects that whole experience, like that's why it's so effective. Because if you can take something like the simple act of having a cigarette and drinking coffee, like you can read that on so many levels. It's like, you know, both nicotine and caffeine are addictive substances, but yeah. they are they are presented to me in very, in very mild ways. And, you know, I'd say a cigarette and a coffee probably represents like human beings having their most, con- having a connection with your corporeal self as opposed to like, you know, your uh, consciousness. So it's like, I'm just doing regular human stuff. So using that state of what's a regular, but now human practice, especially in the Western world, like a mm. cigarette and and coffee, to then delve into the emotions that come with that and the musings that come with that. Again, it's one of the most relatable experiences that you can kind of mm. articulate in a song. I recommend the song. It is, it is, it is, it is, if I was going to translate that into a song, for instance, I would like be like, um, it'd be interesting to me how you held the coffee and the cigarette at different times. Like people hold the, the coffee and the cigarette when they're stressed in a different way than when they're relaxed. So I would pick out that and write a song. Like mm. I, I've got this song called, um, I mean, if you're going to write about a relationship that with someone that, you desperately love and just treat you like absolute rubbish. How would you describe it? And I would be like, well, my trouble, the trouble with me is my troubles with you. Hmm. And so that's mm-hmm. the translation of the feeling. So, you know, holding your cup of coffee in, in a distressed way, that's what I would find to describe it. That's a great thing about writing songs because you can even take the experience in a very literal way. You can use it in a metaphorical way or allegorical way and stuff as well. Or like you said, you just deconstruct, even deconstructing the whole practice of having coffee and a cigarette, which is like the same as comedy as well. Is that like, you know, we can all discuss the premise of having a cigarette and having coffee. But for me as a comedian, it's it like... It means a lot. It means, yeah, it, it, it does. It, yeah, it really does. It, it, you know, the, the, you know the, the, the dependency on it, the fact that, you know, it's a, it's a kind of a default for yeah. emotions. It's like, if I have a cigarette and a coffee, then I can kind of get back to the default and deal with a piece of stress that I'm dealing with. Yeah. yeah. I mean, I mean, even the fact that it's like, those things, those things are seen as like almost necessities, but you wouldn't describe coffee or cigarettes as food or drink, but they seem to be, but they, a lot of the time, are necessities for the creative process. Mm. So, you know, like your police officers have a, a lot of time, you'll see having a cigarette and coffee, like French poets have a cigarette and coffee and stuff as well. Stress so. reliever. Yeah, it's a stress reliever. And so, yeah. That's, it's a great um, song. Uh, it was, it's a great song and it was great to get that question answered by you guys because it's, uh, yeah, definitely what I thought about when you were coming on the show. Thanks for answering it, Skin. Uh, so comprehensively. Yeah, so comprehensive. So <laughs> it's, it's over to Dane for the final question of today's show. Dane, over to you, man. Uh, Skin, I, I'm sure you've heard this, this question a few times. I'm going to try to phrase it. Uh, as broadly as possible so you can elaborate on it because I'm sure you've heard it many times but essentially as Howard said week came out like 96 Mm -hmm. Uh, so I was in my teens then 96 is when Tupac died as well so it was kind of the height of the East Coast West Coast beef 
And I'm sure you may have heard references or memes of people saying like 90s R&B was like golden age for the genre, et cetera mm-hmm. and stuff. Um, so I say that because obviously what you would have been doing as an artist at the time was way left the field of what would have been considered like, you know, contemporary or the quintessential example of what black music would have considered at the time. Yeah. Um, even though that being said, as I'm sure you're more aware than I am, even being able to uh, describe music as black music was quite difficult in the industry. And we had terms like urban, and this is where we had the rise of the MOBOs because of the fact that there was a lack yeah. of recognition. Um, <coughs> and, it was, but, and it was being ignored. Well, yeah, yeah, being loudly ignored. So my uh, question is, like, obviously being a gay, black, working class woman who was also a leading uh, a vocalist in a rock band when black music was struggling to even prosper, much less even have any reference to it in the UK. Um, and I say, and the reason I say this is because like, I think when it comes to like image and art, when it does get in the hands of external, uh, external uh, bodies that aren't actually the creators themselves, <clears throat> they can definitely influence the direction of that um, art. So I can I would have said when I in '96 like Skunk and Nancy would have been the kind of band I was looking for because like I said Tupac just died Biggie and would have, so I almost in my head there was almost a suggestion of what uh, I should be into, but the song Week I was like I fucking love this song and I understand it oh. and I understand it with the same level of intensity that I would understand a song by Tupac and so what so I guess and and nowadays when you look at uh, the face of hip hop and music nowadays, it's very clear that there is, uh, you know, elements of punk and rock that feature. And when you look at artists like XXX Tentacion who passed away, like you can see very obviously, like the aesthetic mm-hmm. is, you know, reminiscent of like rock and punk and stuff as well. Or even when you look at like people like Odd Future, so people are a lot more open with the eclectic influences of their music in the culture. So my question is that because that's all rambling, I guess. My question really <laughs> is. You know, how would you say the journey was as a black artist smashing stereotypes for a quarter century? What did uh, the landscape of music for a black, gay, working class artist look like in 1996 versus how you see it looks today? Great question. Well, yeah, it's a really interesting question. And actually really interesting for me because I've just done a documentary for my radio show called The Blackness of Rock. And in that documentary, I talked to a bunch of people to discover why music that started off just totally as a black thing from Sister Rosetta Tharp, Bessie Smith, you know, a black female thing. You know, they went into, you know, Little Richie, Little Richard, sorry, and all of these other artists, you know, how by the time it got to Jimi Hendrix, he had to leave America because he was seen as being you know, a black guy doing white people's music. Yeah. And obviously by the time Scott Canetti came across, you know, we'd had British black metal, you know, with Black Sabbath and, you know, all those um, British British uh, metal bands, which had made a point of saying there was no blues in their music. It was totally a white thing. Um, and so then comes Scott Canetti in that world where, Whereas, I mean, I remember doing some gigs in those early days and, and some of my friends came and I didn't see them for a month afterwards because, you know, no social media in those days. And I was like, what happened to you? Because, you know, I didn't like I didn't like your band. You weren't singing the music of our people. Um, hmm. And so from both sides of it, I had it. You know, I had um, we had record labels saying that, you know, it was too weird for people to comprehend a black woman singing white people's music. And on the other hand, we have black people saying, yeah, you know, it's not music of our culture. So to really answer the question, it was really hard. I can, <laughs> I, I, I can imagine, it like I said, really because, because for me, it was days. like, even me, it was like, I like this song, but is it okay to even say you like the song? Because yeah, no, exactly, I mean, because the word skunk, you're, skunk you're and Nancy. Coconut or yeah, a coconut, yeah, or a bounty, yeah. yeah, exactly. And that was, yeah. and that word came up very, very often. And like I said, people were like, you kind of look like skin from Skunk and Nancy. So I had even more of a complex as a result of that. Cause I'm like, well, what does it even mean I even look like? But at the same time, I mean, it's fine now. I, I'll definitely take that compliment. But I mean, it's, it sounds very similar to the experience I had in comedy to an extent where there was a lot of topics that I would cover and the spectrum of topics that I saw in predominantly black rooms and what I wanted to cover and the style in which I wanted to perform a lot of the time wasn't something that black British audiences were that used to. 
Whereas, because, obviously, yeah. So, that, so yeah. In, yeah. In lots of ways, I think like black culture is just gets put into to, to boxes of accessibility, yeah. um, and the only way that they jump out of that is they get the white man's seal of approval. You know, usually, you know, talking to Vernon Lee from Living Color, and what made Living Color such a huge fan was, um, um, oh my God, how can I forget his name? Um, but Lee sings the song, Stones with oh, Jagger. Oh, was it? I was going to say, uh, was it Fishbone? Yeah, so, Fishbone, the guy from In Living Color. Uh, no, Living Colour, his name's Vernon Reed. Fishbone's another band. Oh, yeah, yeah, because they, oh, yeah, they yeah. were a Black Street song. And then in Living Colour, there's, oh, they did a song. They um, did Love Is My Ugly Head. That's the one, yeah. Yeah, <laughs> that was a British hit that they had. And so basically, um, you know, I discovered the reason, by the way, I interviewed this amazing woman called Maureen Mann, and she's a professor at um, NYC, which I also do. I'm a mentor at NYC, New York University, the Clive Davis Institute. I'm a mentor there, and she's actually done some work there as well. And she said it was the Beatles. Before that, you know, pop music was genreless. You know, all of the bands, the Motown bands that came a bit later, all the bands that would be before the Beatles, there wasn't an urban or black music genre. And then when the Beatles came along with all their kind of black influence rock music, um, in that how it was perceived in the days, that their success, that's what changed and made it um, a white man thing. Of course, the, literally the success of the Beatles in America wiped everything out. And suddenly you had to have a pop charts, which was Beatles. And black people at that point were ousted out of being in the pop charts because we put in a separate genre, which was, you know, R&B, rhythm and blues, blah, blah, blah. And that's basically how we lost um, you know, rock music being defined as as a black thing, but but actually, black people created rock music is, is something that's ours, and we should really reclaim those kind of areas and have been reclaiming those ever since. But um, in uh, to, but in, in nineteen ninety six, it must have been such a yeah different it, landscape, say, a strange and, landscape. Yeah, in nineteen ninety six, we also had the issue of Britpop. So yeah. we came out from a London scene in King's Cross at the Water Rats, which was a club that my guitarist Ace started with his band, Big Life Casino, because they needed rehearsal money. So we came out of this really vibrant scene. We were in this bubble where it was really diverse, really heavy. We were influenced by all of the grunge stuff. And then what comes along is Damon Albarn, you know, does this deal or comes along and just basically says, no, we don't like that. We want... Um, our music to be British. Um, he didn't say white, but basically British in terms of like this kind of white man's thing, which is it, it came to be, which came, uh, you know, where, which came to the, be a Brit I used to hear, When I was a kid, I used to hear the rumors of people saying that uh, Damon Armand's a bit of a fascist, you know, and I was like, why do people say that? No, no, I realize. <laughs> that might be pushing it. But, yeah, but um, what I'm saying is that, you know, I think he and some other bands had like, you know, wanted to wipe out grunge and want to take all the American music out of British music. So all of a sudden you had this Britpop thing with the British flag, blah, blah, blah. And Skunk and Nancy were not part of that because we weren't perceived as being British because I was the lead singer of the band and Cass with his big dreadlocks was in a band. So we also had to fight against that kind of, and still are to this day, fight against that kind of culture of like Skunk and Nancy aren't good, they're not British enough, they're not rock enough, it's not real rock music, you know, because we came out and ran alongside that whole Britpop thing. Um, and we were not part of Britpop. And when at first that bothered us and it was really hard for us. And then after a while, we thought, you know, when Britpop became this big bloated whale, we were like the salmon swimming upstream hmm. while the big bloated whale was in the middle of the sea, taking up space. And we were like back going up the river and became successful because in some ways we were this antidote to, to Britpop, you know, and then especially when you got out of England, you know, we, when people didn't have that Britpop thing going on. You got a big European we were, following, if I remember correctly, didn't huge, you? Huge, yeah. And still have a much bigger, um, I mean, we played to 16,000 people in Italy, you know. Hmm. Um, and the biggest we are in, in England is uh, Brixton Academy. You know, we can do a couple of those. Um, and so it was very difficult because of this perception of like, this is not black people's music. And, if, and black people are cool when they do this but they're not cool when they do that. Hmm. And it's kind of like, you know, white people, when they do black music, they're always cool because it's like, oh, he's just as good as, she's just as good as Whitney Houston. You know, he's just as good as, you know, Bill DeVoe or whatever. You know, that's the point. It's in a positive thing because when white people are doing things that black people have done and they, white people do it well, like Adele or whatever, everyone goes crazy. 
But the other way around, you're seen as doing something against your culture, against the grain. And I think it's just because we're in a society, it's like, you know, we have to, black people are perceived of having to stay in this little box when we want to break out, because we can be controlled in that box. We want to break out of that box and do something different, which we always do, you know. Um, you know, that's when it becomes difficult. So we basically just had to be five, 10 times as good as everybody else to get to the same dealings. And, you know, if you look at, think about how, you know, we've sold over 6 million records, but at the same time, you know, we, we've never been A-listed at Radio 1. Not then, not now, not ever. Um, you know, a lot of those TV shows and a lot of those things, we just couldn't get them. We couldn't get them now. We couldn't get them then. Um, you know, we're almost kind of blacklisted in terms of a lot of things because of that time that we came out. Um, we had this air put around us that we weren't real rock and we're not. I think one band we toured with, we kicked them off the tour because they did an interview for the NME saying that we were made up band by some, you know, some, some, you know, um, maestro made us up and, you know, to be cool <laughs> you know, and stuff like that. And, and so we kicked them off the tour after they did that. We're like, you know, we don't have to, you don't have to support us. Go and tour with someone else. Yeah. So yeah, it was really difficult. We, and in some ways it, you know, we were successful by being as different as we were and by just keeping doing forward. And really, it was Europe that saved us because we did so well in Europe and did so well on MTV in Europe um, that it kind of leapfrogged what was happening in Britain. So if you go outside to other countries, we're seen as this super cool underground band, you know. But if you're in England, we're seen as this kind of like, oh, Sky Connects, you're not sure I'm like that. You know, we're a bit like... um yeah, it's just a bit of a negativity air around us in this country, mainly because they, I was never really accepted as a rock star. Well, it, it's an amazing answer. And I mean, I, it takes me back to, I'm going to show my age, listeners, but like 1999 was my first ever trip to Glastonbury Festival. I only went twice. And you, you, I mean, you guys smashed it that year. I, I, yeah, but if, if, if you read the reviews afterwards, it was like, why? Because, you know, people talk about Skunk and Nancy Hellen in Glastonbury. First, most people didn't even know we did it. You know, they thought yeah, yeah. Beyonce was the first and Stormzy was the second. Yeah. Um, but, you know, first, but then it's, it was just like, at the time, we absolutely smashed it. If you watch the footage, you can see that we absolutely smashed it. We had a huge production. Songs went down really well. It was crazy. But then you read the reviews afterwards, you know, we were rubbish. And we've never been included in any of those best of Glastonbury things, you know. Yeah, it's crazy. Only literally this year, only post-Black Lives Matter. I was saying there's another pandemic perk was the fact that, like, the normal way that <laughs> people could flippantly dismiss, like, the Black plight, particularly in the UK, it wasn't as easy to do that it when it was right easy. in front of your face. Yeah. So yeah. now people, if anything, open everyone's eyes up, right? Yeah, eyes are open and ears are open as well. And um, no, I mean that, that's the kind of reason I wanted to ask you the question because, like myself, like you know, I've had you know a few accolades in my career. Like I was the first Black British person to be nominated for an award in Edinburgh. I was the first one to do a sitcom wow. on the BBC in Amazing. over twenty years. Um, first one to be a Chortle nominee as well. Um, I don't know if you know Howard for Chortle, which is a comedy-based website. First mm. black nominee for them as well. Even now, I had a show, uh, Bamus, which came out on the BBC. It was the first one to use XR to be filmed in virtual reality. Had, uh, you know, did 0.0 million viewers, which is a broken record, breaks records for a pilot. But like you said, it's like there's a large part of a critical class that because you exist outside of this uh, quintessential aesthetic they have for black people will play down the work that you do a lot of the time. Well, I, I find the most effective thing historically that they can do to kind of rec not recognise this is it's very simple. They just don't talk about us, don't acknowledge yeah, it. That's what I mean. Um, and then yeah, they actually exactly deny that. it. That's why denial politics historically are, are very, very difficult, you know, with the, which is what happens with the Jews. You know, this idea of just denying it, denying it, denying it. And eventually in 500 years, it'd be like, oh, well, did it really happen though? Even yeah. though there's all this weight of evidence, <laughs> yeah, yeah, and exactly. and that's the thing I think, and that's I feel like has happened with in terms of the the, the what Skunk and Nancy did was really life changing and musically very different and 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 historically very changing and very different and diverse for um, for England. And now that kind of diversity is normal, not well beginning to be normal, but that was something. But if I didn't shout about it, if I didn't talk about it, that's yeah, why yeah. I wrote the book, you know, um, it's it stays being ignored and, and becoming invisible, which is the strongest tool that they have, the, the strongest tool that fascism has and white supremacy has and extreme right wing has is to 
number one, say it's not. Do not talk about it, say it's not important. Like Fox News doesn't talk about yeah. half the things that are happening because if they don't like it, they don't talk about it. That means that their audience doesn't even know about it. Precisely. You know? it's, and it's like I say to people uh, a lot of time as well. Yeah, they, they, it's, it's, it's that. a very effective tool to wipe us yeah. out and wipe yeah, out what we've done and our contribution. Yeah, yeah Eurasia is a, very, it's a very good tactic. And, and it's like, it's when even when in the UK, when you realise that the highest demographic of the illiterate in this country is the white working class, that's not an accident. Because if people can't mm. read, if people can't read your facts, and they can't read about the atrocities well, you may have committed. The church did that a thousand years ago. There you go. They'll, they didn't they'll want blindly to read. Exactly, because if you can read, you can critically think about and analyze what you're reading. You can and you that get means, brains. Yeah, you get your brains, which means if you don't read it, and you don't understand it, then you just take it for gospel what you're told, which allows for um, imperialism more to work a lot more effectively. Yeah, yeah. So, of the masses. Absolutely. So uh, I'm glad that you are. Continuing the fight against that's a great that. question. I like that question. I wish people that would ask me that more often. Oh, well, I, you know, what? I got, remember I said at the beginning, I was like, I oh, get asked this all the time, but that's insane. No, this no is the reason I wanted to. Is, no one that's crazy. That question. It, it's only now since I wrote the book, a few people have uh, mentioned that. But um, yeah, the answer to it, it was really difficult. Continues to be difficult. Like it, nothing is easy for Skunk and Nancy now to this day. Um, things are slightly better because of Black Lives Matter, and people are looking back on it and going like. Oh my gosh, Skunk and Nancy wrote these songs in 1994, 95. Way back ahead of the time. I'm getting a bit of like, you know, respect, backdated respect in that way. Yeah. Um, And I think certainly, you know, you look at, I can see the influence of Skunk and Nancy in a lot of new bands and black bands, especially American bands. I can see the influence of Skunk and Nancy coming out now, which makes me really happy. Yeah. Well, I also follow an account called Afropunk. And oh yeah, 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 yeah. So they, they showed a lot of the aesthetics and stuff like that as well. And I think you know, even the fact that you know, being open about your sexuality and stuff, these were strides that weren't taken by a no. lot of black artists. Sexuality that were able in those to do. days, yeah, yeah sexuality. Yeah, you couldn't even do that. Yeah, you remember with Britpop came lad culture. So yeah. those who remember that, yeah, yeah, that very and that well, was yeah, yeah. really you know. So you also had this huge levels of misogyny, mm-hmm. huge levels of racism with the whole Britpop thing, which was, was about excluding things that have blues in it, which had American influences in it, which had black influences. That was not perceived as being Britpop. Britpop became a certain sound that was represented by a certain look, and it yeah. was a deliberate thing. Of Britpop course. didn't happen out the ether. It was no, a no. thing that was deliberately decided on. Um, and that, I think, was probably the number one thing that made it a lot harder for Skunk and Nancy was not being perceived as part of Britpop. And, and for people like Damon Albarn to actually, you know, do what they can to destroy us. I mean, we had that going on. Which is well. ironic because then years later, he reinvents himself as the Gorillas. They tour with Kano and they have De La Soul doing backing vocals for their songs as exactly. well. So, so there's yeah, a was... You know, but the thing is, for people like that and people in that thing, they can do whatever they want because they have the power and their control yeah. and they can, you know, do any genre, work with whoever they want to work with. Um, and they have a lot of power over other artists. You know, when Damon yeah. Albarn says he doesn't like Skunk and Nancy to every interview he does for a year, then that has also makes it really difficult for us because mm, yeah. he's perceived as being a cool dude. Yeah, yeah. Well, I mean, it definitely sounds like we need to hear more about this in the book. So I hope this covers it. Um, so I just want to say him really. <laughs> but yeah, but, but at least at least but we hope your journey is covered. I, there I as mean, well. I think what's interesting about the book is it does describe like a lot of people saying, "How how did you manage to do it?" And I I basically talk about being a black black girl from Brixton, which is where mm. I'm from, and going through two riots, and how actually we did actually manage to be in this huge successful band. And so it's like my personal journey. And there's a lot of uh, hilarious stuff in there, and there's a lot of really awful stuff that happens in there too. Um, but yeah, that, well, that's I'm sure uh, I'm sure our listeners have enjoyed this episode as much as me and Dane have. I'd and like should... a copy. I think it sounds like I need a copy. Yeah, we're going to go and get. We're going to go and start buying yeah, buying them. I would love a copy. Yeah, we're going to get we're going to get a copy. Um, but Skin, again, thank you so much. Uh, the podcast has met all expectations and exceeded them. Um, so as well as the book, uh, is there anywhere else our listeners could find out about your good works? Isn't there a tour coming um, up? Isn't there a tour yeah, coming up? Yeah, we've got a tour coming up, which starts in March, actually. Oh, right, and okay. I think it starts with Brixton Academy in March. We actually go to Iceland as well, which is going to be fun. Uh, yeah, so that, I mean, me, I'm just doing lots of different things. I've got music. I just got to try to come up with Mark Knight called Nothing Matters. I'm teaching, I'm mentoring at New York University, um, which is incredible wow. working with all these students. Um, and, you know, just, I'm, I'm always busy, 
always busy. And um, I do, I, but the lovely thing now is I've, I've built a studio in my house here. Uh, and uh, so that means I'm, I'm doing a lot more kind of creative stuff from in, which is just fun. Yeah, that's, for me, just working on musical days is just really good fun. So, yeah. Lots and lots um, of stuff I'm, for people I'm, to check out. Yeah, I mean, I'm, I'm, I'm kind of. Um, this is probably a lot. This is the last thing June do because my wife's about to have a baby. So, well, congratulations! My wifey, so, in about yeah. three weeks. <laughs> so that's why you got a studio. That's why you got a studio. That's why you got a studio in the house. <laughs> yeah, studio in the house. So yeah, I close that door. It's got a lock on it. Too. That's it. Soundproof and all of that. Yeah, yeah, yeah. it's all good. Um, oh, it was such a pleasure, honestly, to have you on the show. We have so many different different people on the show and you, um, uh, you are up there with all of our great guests thank you so thank much thank you so much it's been a real pleasure thank, thank you for you. The, some great questions Cheers. lovely you've been listening to Dane Baptiste questions everything hosted by Dane Baptiste for more from Dane go to danebaptiste.co.uk or follow him on twitter at danebaptweets or instagram at danesnaptiste our guest was Skin. You can follow Skin on Twitter at SkinSkinny. The show is produced by me, Howard Cohen. Follow me on Twitter and Instagram at the Howard Cohen. The show is mixed and mastered by Audio Culture. You can follow Audio Culture on Instagram at WeAreAudioCulture. Please rate and review the show on Apple Podcasts or wherever you listen to us. You can find us on Twitter and Instagram at DBQE Podcast. Thanks for listening, guys. And remember, question everything. Want truly hydrated skin? Meet Osea's Body Care Breakthrough Hyaluronic Body Serum. It's clinically proven to increase hydration by 161%. It's lightweight, fast-absorbing, and delivers 24 hours of hydration for silky smooth skin without any sticky afterfeel. Treat your skin to clean, vegan skincare from Osea. Get 10% off your first order with code SUMMER at OseaMalibu.com. That's O-S-E-A Malibu.com code SUMMER.